Walk in the Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on emerging doctrine and the Army's vision of warfare. Hello. I'm Captain Wyatt Harper, and today's podcast topic covers reconstitution operations. With me today is the Commanding General of the Combined Arms Support Command, or CASCOM, the Sustainment Center of Excellence in Fort Lee, Major General Mark Simmerly, also Colonel Annie Morgado, the Director of the School of Advanced Military Studies, or SAMS, here at Fort Leavenworth. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Wyatt. So normally we discuss an overview of the doctrine itself before we kind of get into the the nuance and different subject matters of each one. So I'll go into that. So um, reconstitution is an operation that commanders plan and implement to restore units to a level of combat effectiveness that is commensurate with their mission requirements and the available resources that they have. It, it, it's not just personnel and equipment. It's it's abstract things like platoon sergeants will become platoon leaders, platoon leaders become company commanders, and so on. The major elements of reconstitution are the assessment, reorganization, and regeneration. We have immediate versus deliberate reconstitution. Also with major losses, you're probably going to see a, a RTF, a reconstitution task force. And so for our audience out there, uh, in the publication, you'll, you'll see a visual depiction of a tank company uh, that just broke contact, and, and we see how it could kind of play out. So obviously in this situation, there are no perfect solutions to the problem set. But first, I'll hit reorganization, because I think we as a force have some experience with that. You have immediate reorganization, and you have deliberate. The best way to categorize these are to describe immediate as probably being done on the objective, while deliberate is done out of contact. Then we have regeneration, which can be broken down into two, two types of regeneration, incremental or subunit replacements. And here's a scenario with the different types of replacements and the merits and drawbacks a commander may notice while doing this. Um, so you have uh, Alpha Company loses four out of their 14 tanks in an engagement. Two were lost from the first platoon, and the second and third platoon both lose one. Under incremental regeneration, Alpha Company would receive their four replacement tanks with crews and ammo. The replacements would go to the appropriate platoons that experienced the loss, and then those new crews would then integrate themselves. Under subunit regeneration, Alpha Company would consolidate its remaining tanks into two platoons, and then receive a completely new platoon. You got new PL, new platoon sergeant, everybody. This new platoon will have been conducting collective training as a platoon already. So the merits of incremental regeneration are that we maintain combat experience in each platoon and the platoon leadership is familiar with the chain of command. But the drawbacks of incremental regeneration are that some crews are in new roles and there's some degree of training for them and for the new people coming in. The merits of subunit regeneration, the one where you get an entirely new platoon, are that the members of the consolidated platoon already know each other, and the new platoon requires less collective training. They probably have to learn some company SOPs, but they're well meshed with each other. But the drawbacks of the subunit regeneration are that the new platoons now have to integrate themselves with the entire chain of command, 
and they may lack combat experience. So there's clearly some hard choices in front of the commander at this point. So, sir, I'd like to bring you in and hear your take on this process because though reconstitution is not a sustainment operation, sustainment formations play a pivotal role. And you've had some previous positions in organizations that would play a key role in this. You were the commanding general of the 19th Expeditionary Sustainment Command, headquartered in Daegu, South Korea. And then from there, you moved up to Camp Humphreys to be the assistant chief of staff, J-4, for United States Forces Korea. Um, but, sir, before we get to reconstitution, can you describe for the audience members not in the sustainment community what is an Expeditionary Sustainment Command? Uh, Wyatt, thanks. And, and I'll tell you... Uh before I answer that specific question, this concept and the responsibilities of reconstitution are something that uh, I've had to address and understand uh, and uh, describe to others really throughout my career. I remember the first exercise I did at the core level uh, when I was tasked uh, to support a core rear CP and a warfighter exercise uh, was to develop a plan for something called weapon system replacement operations. Uh, and so that was all the way back in 1992. Uh, and so I've been dealing with this question for some time, and, and I think there's a lot of leaders who've had uh, challenges associated with it. And they, it may not come with the title of reconstitution in a phase, but the, the objects and the outcomes of the operation uh, are something that many people have experience with and most leaders should have experience with. Uh, so I'll, I'll just start off with that. And then to your question, you know, what is an ESC, an Expeditionary Sustainment Command? Well, it, it's a one-star logistics command that provides mission command for attached units in an area of operations, usually defined by a theater sustainment command, which it could work for, an R4, uh, or a joint task force. And typically you'll see an ESC serving in a role uh, you know, providing sustainment for a corps or an army headquarters like 8th Army in Korea, uh, but also serving under a theater sustainment command doing roles such as theater opening, RSOI-like tasks, theater sustainment, theater distribution, uh, etc. Uh, in, the, in the active component, we have four ESCs, and they're directly aligned either with corps headquarters or with 8th Army headquarters, as an example. Uh, and so, you know, what it, what it is intended to do is to plan and execute sustainment, distribution, theater opening, reception, staging, and onward movement for Army forces. And depending upon the command structure within the theater, they might be employed to support specific Army forces within a specific area of operations or joint area of operations to support other ESCs or sustainment brigades with theater opening or theater distribution capabilities. And it's focused on synchronizing within the operational level of sustainment operations. And that you know, helps uh, the uh, commander of that area of operations uh, to meet their day-to-day -day tasks. And you know, so the readiness and the operational requirements of the joint task force or the supported force is what an ESC addresses. And it provides the mid-range and short-range planning horizons uh, based upon the uh, uh, JTF-O plan. Uh, the commander's intent, the CCAR, operational tempo, and of course distribution system capability. Uh, so I, I just I'll go back to where I, I began and say this is the sustainment command that supports either the Corps of the Army uh, or a TSC. Thanks, sir.
Sir, as an armor officer, I must say I'm a little disappointed that uh, when you discussed weapon system replacement operations, you didn't use what an armor officer would call it or WISRO, because we just like using that term because uh, we can in a professional discussion. But let's talk about my naivete as a young officer dealing with WISRO. We thought all you do is hit the WISRO button and a tank with four crewmen would actually appear uh, to replace a lost tank. But I'm glad you used it, sir. And, Andy, like you, you know, that's one of my favorite all-time acronyms in the Army, WISRO. Uh, and, and that's what I've encountered many times. Uh, a commander or a leader thinks this is something that somebody else is going to do for them to produce a combat capability to reconstitute or regenerate some combat power uh, that's been degraded over time. Uh, and, and we have had plans in the past to do that, uh, but they are resourced at a very high level, core level and above, uh, in order to do something like that. And the complexity and the resources required aren't really anything that we envision right now to be done. So for instance, you know, behind a, a uh, WISRO operation, weapon system replacement operation. There you go, sir, that was good. We had, a, we had an entire inventory of materiel that was dedicated to do that in Europe and, and storage sites and capabilities we used to call POMCA stocks. And forgive me if I don't give you the spell out of that acronym. <laughs> um, but that's where we would have the tanks, uh, all the other material that we could draw from those stocks and then issue for follow-on purposes as we reconstituted. Today, the stocks that we have pre-positioned and our Army pre-positioned stocks, we issue to arriving forces. So we don't have that inventory. Uh, so that's where this, that's why I think WISRO, one reason why it's a dated term and dated, dated operation. Yes, yeah, sir, and uh, you know, you being the former chief of staff, and I haven't said this yet, but being the former chief of staff of the 8th Army, you can attest to 19th ESC's role in that theater, can't you? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, certainly uh, from an 8th Army perspective, 19th ESC punched way above its weight class in terms of what was, you know, physically on the ground uh, and having to, you know, to leverage uh, a multitude of sources within theater to generate, you know, combat power and sustainment. So it, uh, it, I guess not every ESC is built the same. Uh, and uh, I think that's one of the challenges, too, in our Army is understanding that uh, it's very much tailored to a specific theater. But, uh, I mean, w one of the, the big tasks I know of 19th ESC with other sustainment partners was, you know, maintaining APS uh, on the theater, Th though not directly to a the ESC's job, certainly a big part of it. And that's one of the big, you know, myths about um reconstitution is that we're going to pull from APS. Now, APS is already spoken for, uh, and in, particularly in Korea, where, you know, we, we kind of have, uh, you know, the fighting methodology, hey, you're going to be alone for 30 days, right? So, uh, you know, what do you do with what you have on hand? And and uh, APS is already spoken for. So uh, another interesting, uh, you know, Koreaism or understanding that. Well, I think you make a, a good point, Andy, about the ESCs not all being the same. So while each MTO ESC is identical, uh, if you were to take a comparison between a CONUS-based ESC, uh, like, say, you know, the 13th ESC stationed at Fort Hood that operates in support of 3 Corps, uh, it has significantly less capability than the 19th ESC in Korea uh, through our arrangements and host nation support. Uh, so, for instance, in the Distribution Management Center, uh, there's um, a multitude of Korean teammates in either in the uh, Korean Service Corps uh, or another part of the workforce that provides some of that capability. Uh, so there's a lot of depth to that organization. And of course, it can tap into not just APS, it can tap into the host nation support network that's very mature and robust. And as you know, something that we exercise routinely for operation of nodes and modes 
uh, and routes, you know, all required to support not only RSOI, but feeder sustainment. It is definitely a unique environment. I mean, it, when you talk about doctrine, it's almost as if you were going to talk about doctrine and then you were talking about Korea. You have to, I mean, we should always be changing our, our mindset about the operational environment. But it, for those who have been in the rock, you understand. Um, so I've already kind of talked about what reconstitu- lo- reconstitution looks like, um, specifically a regener- ge- regeneration scenario with the replacement tank showing up to an attrited unit as an example, but those replacements came from somewhere. And the personnel and the equipment, it all came from somewhere and was brought in in some sort of fashion or some sort of way um, by a sustainment formation. So in general, sir, um, and you mentioned IMTO issues and it would be different, or the IMTOs are, are the same, but how would an ESC play a role in reconstitution, depending on the type of units at the time underneath that guide on? Well, you know, I think if, if let's say we were to take a, um, a division uh, following something like a wet gap crossing, right? So probably transitioning to the defense uh, or, or maybe a follow-on mission that would come. But you know after the completion of a forward passage alliance doing a wet gap crossing uh, that that organization has had its combat power treated. Uh, so, you know, what are the phased approaches to reconstitution for that organization? So first of all, you're going to start with reorganization. That's really phase one of reconstitution. Uh, and within that, there's going to be some things that the unit can do organically. Uh, for instance, it can do all of its combat replenishment, right? So there might be some requirement for stocks that are not currently within the division, uh, but, but for the most part, you're going to be able to you know, replenish the fuel, the munitions, those other things to restore them to their basic load. So that's a way uh, to help improve combat power. And of course, then there's, there's the maintenance actions where you can you know, do those things, you know, maybe BDAR, battle damage assessment and repair, um, you know, cannibalization, uh, cross-leveling of uh, parts and equipment to, to generate higher readiness levels in terms of your operational readiness rate. So those are all components of reorganization. Uh, in addition to cross-leveling of personnel and equipment. So, you know, a commander may decide, I, I need to get a unit up to a certain level of readiness, and they're going to prioritize formations within that division or within a brigade. Uh, so those are really the, the initial steps into it. And those are things mostly that a unit can do organically uh, with its assigned capability or with those that are operating in, in uh, direct support. Uh, I think where the ESC comes in, although there could be some direction of traffic and prioritization of materiel delivery within that first phase, but it's really within the second phase, which is the regeneration. Uh, And, you know, regeneration, um, intentional restoration of a unit's combat power, right? And it's it's a very deliberate approach. Generally, it has to take place somewhere uh, that is not impeded by the threat uh, or where the threat can be mitigated. uh, So you can can, uh, apply resources uh, and, and uh, conduct the operation in a way that allows the unit to achieve its, its uh, regeneration objectives. So usually it's generated from a core level or above. Uh, in a committed division, you know, it really can't regenerate a subordinate unit. It's, it's going to need help from beyond that division level. And even if it is not committed division, we'll need significant help from an ESC or a TSC. And you can think of some of the things from a distribution standpoint, a supply standpoint, material management standpoint, 
life support standpoint, uh, and even contracting that would be required to execute a mission like this. Uh, and I'll go back and just, I said a mission. It's, this is an operation, right? I think we all acknowledge that, and, and, I'm, and I'm sure as Mr. Creed describes it, you know, it, it's really clear uh, that this is not something that a, a, a sustainment organization does uh, without other warfighting functions uh, helping to enable it as well. And you, one thing that you mentioned, sir, that stuck out to me, you know, we have to find a place to do this uh, reconstitution that's kind of out of contact or um, at least the threat is diminished. But then I, I think about the newly published FM30 and the imperatives of always being under observation and usually in constant contact. I mean, that has to be a really tough ticket to, to figure out, correct? No, it, it really is. And, you know, it's, it's, it depends on the, the battlefield, of course, and, you know, the circumstances of the threat. But if you think about some of the actions that I just described, personnel and equipment restoration, health service support, uh, collective training uh, even, you know, th those are all tasks that are not executed well when, when a unit's in contact, right? I think we all know that. Uh, so you, you really have to take an organization offline, let's just say that, uh, in order to do this effectively uh, or, you know, uh, in, a, in a deliberate manner. Uh, so that really leads me to, you know, discuss this next point is uh, there must be a contingency plan for this, right? It's, it's not something that you want to develop after you've conducted the wet gap crossing. You want to have this plan, and you want to have rehearsed this plan. You want to ensure that all the stakeholders, all the responsible commands, are aware of their roles uh, and have identified the resources that are going to be necessary in order to do that. You don't want discovery learning after the fact and hope that you're going to achieve your objectives. Uh, so that's often a neglected portion of this is to understand the, the, the planning that's necessary to, to, to this in advance in order to execute it. You talked, oh, go ahead, sir. Sorry, in, in your previous statement and, and why it's question, kind of go to it, but I want to focus on the word you use was prioritization, right? And I think that that word really highlights why this is an operational problem and not a, a logistics or sustainment problem, because it's going to be that, you know, unit commander, whether, you know, division, brigade, battalion level that has to make some very clear decisions about what he or she wants uh, in, in order to continue the operation. So, you know, our, our logistician superheroes are going to keep hauling stuff uh, to the front and moving broke stuff to the rear uh, in the, in, as they see it. But unless the, the commander clearly articulates, okay, I, I need to regenerate my reconnaissance in order to push them forward, okay, that, that's then a clear priority for, you know, reconstitution. We got to get reconnaissance done first, and then other things can wait. So that, that just really highlights this idea of th this is an operation run by, you know, the commander of the organization, not a, a, a subtask that you delegate, you know, to, to your logistics commander, because he or she is not going to know what to do first if, if we don't prioritize that for them. I think also um, defining the objective uh, of the reconstitution so and doing that in advance. You, you, we will never be able to predict uh, the degradation of combat power following any operation, right? But we can make informed estimates uh, and, and we can determine, you know, whether or not we need to get to a 75% or an 85% mark in combat power in that unit as we reconstitute, or if it's necessary, 100%, so we've got an operational unit that can be employed uh, for all of its intended purposes. 
Um, but I think that estimation and, and uh, setting that objective up front is really important to this. Uh, and, that, and that's in part because uh, you have to task organize for this effort, right? You're, you're not really going to be able to take any standing organization in order to execute this. Uh, and, you know, what, what we see as a, as a technique is the establishment of a task force. Uh, and, you know, it's a reconstitution task force. And if you look at what it does, providing the equipment, providing the equipment repair, replacement, supply replenishment, all those commodities, the fuel, the ammo, et cetera, the mission essential training, right? So, you know, that, that is really, you know, you talk about the training aspect, uh, and, and it really highlights the fact that uh, you can't take a single functional type command to do this, right? This is a multifunctional effort. It has to be a multifunctional team if you're going to uh, dedicate it to that. So, for instance, a division commander uh, anticipating this can, can create a demand signal for another organization outside the division to oversee that collective training in advance if it's, if it's planned uh, adequately. Uh, and that's going to help to assure its success. Uh, but I think it's, it's really important to understand that RTF uh, the Reconstitution Task Force uh, is, a, is a really uh, well-proven and well-understood uh, technique for success. Yes, sir, and you, and, I mean, we kind of hit this about planning this in advance, right? So this goes, you know, this is something that somebody in the G5 is going to be working on, probably uh, putting it in the O plan, reviewing it in conjunction with the, with the G4, probably, you know, writing those branches, writing those sequels and you mentioned the wet gap crossing i mean that's already part of the wet gap crossing process is what are we going to do once we get to the far side um and then you have to plan for that two-way traffic like you said bring bring uh the casualties and the the broken equipment back but uh colonel magato sir so right now you're the director of sams um and i said uh, before this you were the eighth army chief of staff also at camp Humphreys. but when you were a student at SAMS, your monograph was on reconstitution. And you really hit some of the issues that we face at a national level because reconstitution, you know, it, it, it's an operational problem, but it can go all the way up to the national level. So I was really interested in your monograph and when you were talking about force structure issues. You know, at the time we had, at the time of your writing, we had, we had removed the major commitments in Iraq. We were drawing down in Afghanistan. Um, and you pulled from, um, some, some authors, and I'll let you kind of go into that, but uh, can you kind of uh, orient the audience a little bit about what you learned with Reconstitution while you wrote your, your monograph? Sure. Uh, I guess the first thing I have to say is that no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, so uh, I, I wrote a, a monograph to meet an educational requirement, and here I am talking about it, you know, seven years later. That's right. Uh, but it's good. It's all good because it's all, it's all good Army business. Um, so I, I think you're referring to the, the Kagan and Donnelly model that I use about blocks, but I, I can't talk about them until I talk about Richard Betts first, who, who's a theorist. Spent a lot of time talking about surprise and about readiness. So uh, Richard Betts talks about there's three kinds of readiness. There's structural, operational, and mobilization. Uh, the, the sexy topic is all about operational readiness because, you know, whether it be civilian leadership, Congress, even senior military leaders want to know about, you know, how many divisions and brigades can you generate. But I think the true professional, uh, particularly at the strategic level and at the operational level, needs to understand structural and mobilization. So, uh, you know, R Richard Betts talks about we have to define uh, readiness in terms of for when, for what, and of what, right? So, uh, again, 
that we need to focus not so much on the operational, but on, on structural mobilization, meaning what does our force need to look like? And then how do we mobilize to that force? Because we know in a large scale combat operation, whatever our current standing active duty forces isn't going to be enough to, to, to accomplish what some of our anticipated missions are. So we use .milpf, right? Doctrine, you know, organization, training, material, leadership, uh, personnel, and facilities. So understanding structurally, you know, what do we want to do? It all starts with the D, with doctrine, right? So, so what is it, how is it that our organization is going to fight? And then everything else that uh, follows in .milpf has to follow doctrines, how we're going to build our units uh, and our organizations. So once we get the doctrine figured out, and now we know it's an MDO, right? Uh, and and, and large-scale combat operations in terms of how we're developing, you know, how we're going to fight and then what, what elements are, are going to help us to do that. So what Kagan uh, and his co-author Donnelly suggested for organization, and again, this is back in uh, in the 2014 range, said, hey, we just need a force that can do these six different missions, right? We want one for coin. We want a force that can handle two simultaneous campaigns. We need a partner force. We need a counterproliferation force. We need a strategic reserve, and we need an institutional base. So as I reflect on now and my research, it was total crap. Really? I, I would not go back, and I would not... <laughs> advocate for Kagan. So I because uh, perhaps I was a little naive and I was looking at the world a little bit differently, but I would not support the Kagan six block model. However, what I do support is we do have to figure out what our organization is going to look like and then what are eases of producing that organization and then we can build uh, the right material and get the right training done for our organization. So that's important. We've got to figure that out. That is an important step. It's not just publishing our keystone document. FM30 is real important, but what comes after that? And the key is it has to do with our industrial base. If we know what kind of force that we're going to fight, then that alerts our, our sustainment teams and more importantly, our industrial base, what type of equipment that they have to build and what kind of quantities. So that, that part, logical, makes sense. I'll, I'll stand by it. You know, using the Kagan Donnelly model, I made a big mistake. That's not what I would advocate <laughs> for. But anyway, um, so that, that, if that answers your question. It does, sir. And I mean, you know, uh, it, when you, you mentioned the industrial base and, you know, in large-scale combat operations, reconstitution efforts going to call on that industrial base. And before he retired, you know, sir, word around the campfire was that General Perno was very uh, involved in, uh, in developing and working with the industrial base. Um, uh, that's... So how is that, what, what are the key organizations that are going to play into the industrial base? I think there's some that uh, those in the operational army may not really understand these type of units that exist out there. Can you go into that, sir? Well, you mentioned General Perna, of course, uh, in his role as the commander of the Army Materiel Command, which has responsibility, direct responsibility for a large component of the, na the nation's and all of the Army's defense industrial base. So that the depots that produce munitions, uh, they produce and, and repair uh, equipment, that's all part of the OIB, the Organic Industrial Base. Uh, and, and you'll see uh, in the coming years a tremendous reinvestment in those capabilities uh, because there's a modernization requirement there, but also uh, there's a, a workforce retention and development requirement that's all tied in and envisioned uh, by AMC and their current plan to modernize the OIB. Uh, I would say also the defense industrial base is broader than that though. Uh, and you have to understand that there's components of access to commercial markets. 
so you, you look at all the services, you know, the, the uh, demand that stimulates production, uh, and it includes many commercial uh, markets. So, for instance, with Defense Logistics Agency, they own the medical supply chain that supports the DOD. So all of the, the Class 8, uh, all of the other pharmaceuticals that the DOD and the Army requires are gener generated from commercial stocks. And so having access to those markets at critical times, like during a pandemic, uh, are challenges or to stimulate production of things like vaccines uh, or, or other items that we might need for protection of soldiers in conflict usually competes with a commercial market as well. So there's ways that we can gain access to a market uh, with investments up front. So for instance, DLA uh, will we'll, uh, partner with some uh, commercial providers to have uh, a percentage of a market for a commodity during a contingency by paying them continuously up front. It's like insurance. Uh, so those are some ways that you know we, we look at the uh, industrial base widely uh, beyond just the things that the Army owns that it can invest in directly. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's really important, you know, what Andy was talking about. Uh, and I'll just, you know, I love giving credit to Rich Creed and his team, uh, especially when it comes to 3.0, and I think it's brilliant in so many ways. But one of the ways it's really important that we understand is it created a fourth level of war. Uh, now, it's not true that it created it. It actually just uh, labeled it and, and uh, helped us understand it. So obviously the tactical and the operational, right? But then the theater strategic and the national strategic. So, you know, the operation we're talking about now with a reconstitution with an ESC as an example, or could even be a theater sustainment command, operational and tactical. However, it relies upon capabilities that are strategic. And for instance, uh, army preposition stocks in a theater of operations as an example. Uh, strategic capability, uh, but it may be a theater-specific capability that's strategic. And so now that we have this delineation, it's really helpful as we align roles, responsibilities, and resources. Or if it's national strategic, like something in the organic industrial base or the defense industrial base. Uh, so I, I think that's really helpful in helping us understand the problem set, uh, but also where the resourcing and where unit responsibilities can lie. And so just to caveat off of that, so uh, when I talked about, you know, Betts's, you know, uh, operational mobilization and structural readiness, under mobilization, people should not equate it with just mobilizing people. It also means how we mobilize the industrial base because we have to send a, some sort of demand signal back of what we need. And then how do we, you know, rebuild some capabilities that may have, you know, gone away. Uh, and, and so... So that mobilization piece is, is all encompassing, and, and so yeah, absolutely the you know, understanding that theater and national link up, and you know how it you know, ties into the operational, all the way down to how that tank platoon is going to get its tank uh, is, is is all important. It's all one string. Yeah, I think sometimes people in at least in my generation of, of service members may not fully grasp or appreciate the importance of of reconstitution because doing it at the scale that we might need to do in large-scale combat operations. We haven't done it really since, uh, you know, maybe World War II, uh, maybe Vietnam. But do you guys, in your careers, have we done anything? Can you recall any of it? You mentioned something, sir, early on in your career that you were focused with um, equipment replacement. Um, is there, do you have any experience with doing this? There was a, there's a few times in Afghanistan we kind of replaced some battalions, but. Well, I mean, I, I think we had very mature plans 
that we rehearsed to um, a certain level of fidelity uh, in in the Cold War of Europe, right? So during that that time, you know, we we went down to the point where we were loading trains with material. Uh, we were we were bringing them forward to certain locations, linking them up with units. You know, as we as we looked at weapon system replacement operations. So we do have fairly recent experience with that, uh, and I, I would say, you know, we we did experience combat losses. Let's say the the early stages, uh, an initial phase of um, Operation Iraqi Freedom, as an example, right? It's, you know, approach into Baghdad. We had to restore combat power to those units for them to, to be able to continue on their mission. And we didn't take them out of contact in order to do that. Uh, so I don't think anybody would say this was a deliberate regeneration, uh, but certainly there was reorganization that took place in the near term. Uh, and then there were non-organic uh, capabilities that were beyond the division level that were applied in order to do that. Uh, so I think if you were to talk to commanders in those formations, you know, they experience something like reconstitution. Well, I, I have no, uh, I guess, re real world application, and I would agree with General Sermerly. I, I think much of what we've done has been well below the threshold of, of a reconstitution, more reorganization, and, uh, and, and resupply. But I, I do have an example. Uh, as a, I was as a, as a captain, this was 1999. I was the S4 for 4th Squadron, 7th Cavalry, you know, back, back in Korea. Uh, we were in a warfighter uh, exercise, and so uh, we deployed, you know, obviously the main, uh, you know, tactical operations center and the combat trains command post, which uh, I was the leader of. And so our squadron was uh, assigned the mission of conducting a, a zone recon that then turned into a, um, a hasty attack, and we fought through the night. And so, you know, being an armor officer in the CTCP, I was all about, you know, being in a knife fight. We're doing Kazavak. We're doing vehicle evacuation. We're doing emergency resupply of, you know, three, five, uh, and just Whole all, all through the night. We were doing an all, all-nighter. Uh, and so finally, uh, you know, we reached, uh, you know, the limit of advance uh, of our attack. It was successful. You know, we, we were victorious. We we're doing the victory dance on the objective. <laughs> and so I blow out a CTCP, and I'm headed to the sleep tent. It's about for me to go 10 toes up. And, and who did I see leaving the talk but uh, my squadron commander, uh, then Lieutenant Colonel Mike Formica, right? And he's, uh, he's leaving the CP, and I'm about to give him a high five, like, you know, how well we did. And he looks at me, and he's like, where the hell are you going, right? And so I'm like, <laughs> oh, man. I go, sir, what, what are you talking about? He's like, I go, you're the four. Your fight's just starting. We got to reconstitute uh, all our elements. We took a, you know, we won, but we took a pretty big, big lick. You need to get back in the CTCP and start figuring out how we regenerate. And so I, you know, my big poopy face uh, came on. I said, yes, sir. I did an about face back in the CTCP. And I went into, you know, assessment, reorganization, you know, regeneration activity. So, so even then, 99, we're, we're, we were training it. I just don't think we've, you know, you know, done it, you know, to that level, as, as General Sermerly noted. But we certainly have, have thought about it and applied it at, at different times. And, and kudos to Mike Formica uh, for, for realizing that and applying focus and, and uh, guidance uh, to that end. Uh, it's a challenge that we typically have in the training environment, right? The limits of the training environment, the number of training days we have, the training objectives that we have to get after uh, where we don't necessarily get the opportunity to service that training objective, uh, whether it's at a CTC uh, or whether it's at a warfighter exercise, a division or core level. Uh, it's usually something that's left on the table that we know we must do, but we don't do. 
Yes, sir. Since you brought up training, sir, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking about all these warfighters that we have, and we do, you know, we do the sexy stuff and, and those and C2ing. Um, that's a bad word, but we C2 the, the, the wet gap crossing, and then, you know, sometimes they give the nice hand wave for reconstitution. Um, right now, do you think we have the, the training infrastructure in place anywhere to be able to actually do a physical reconstitution exercise like you mentioned back in, you know, uh, the Cold War days? So, I mean, there's, there's no doubt that we have the infrastructure, we have the capability, uh, but do we have the time, you know, versus all the other training objectives that we have to get after uh, is probably the question. Uh, and I certainly understand and support commanders uh, who see other training priorities that they have. Uh, but, you know, we used to say that about things like RSO and I as well, right, where we didn't rehearse those, where we didn't plan them uh, adequately, uh, and we, we didn't get a chance to um, focus on them. So if, if you've had the benefit of being in an organization, you know, like I was when I was in 8th Army, where you had commanders focus or, you know, U.S. Forces Korea, uh, where they, they knew the importance of that operation, and it was something that we rehearsed twice a year, every year. Uh, and not only rehearsed it in terms of, you know, a uh, deliberate rehearsal where you bring all the commanders together, but rehearsed it on the ground where we we're actually bringing in combat power, integrating it with the host nation support activities, you know, doing all the reception, staging, staging onward movement and integration. Now, did we ever really get to the level of detail that we would need to in order to really execute it? No, not quite, especially when it came to integration. You know, rarely did we really lay out or I would say never in my time, did we lay out the uh, tactical assembly areas? We'd want to bring in units, match them with uh, uh, all of their, their basic loads and the training, you know, in order to get them fully integrated. Uh, but we knew what the requirements were and we rock drilled those. Uh, so, you know, I, I would argue uh, that, you know, there's going to be a day uh, when we need to do a deliberate approach, have a deliberate training approach to this process if we expect to be able to regenerate combat power. I would not want to um, have an operation underway against either our, our acute threat in Europe or our pacing threat uh, in the Pacific uh, winging this process in order to regenerate combat power uh, or reconstitute combat power because there's nobody else who's gonna come and do it for us. Right. There, there's nobody who's lurking in the background who's going to come in and save the day. It's on us and, and uh, the responsibilities to, to generate the combat power and anticipate the degradation and all the resources are going to be required to do that are incumbent upon us today. Are there some misconceptions? We mentioned a few, um, you know, one like this is a sustainment operation. No, it's not. It's an operation with sustainment elements to it. You know, APS, you already said APS is spoken for. What are some other, and I'll throw this out to both of you, what are some misconceptions that we get? Uh, I, I would say from, from an operator, I think one of the misconceptions that we have is that we're going to get the same exact gear that we lost, right? Uh, I would say that uh, in our current environment with some of the absolutely exquisite capability uh, that's turned out and we field, when we lose it, it's going to take a little bit to make another one just like it. So we have to expect that we're going to, we, we might receive gear in replacement that's one or two generations older than the equipment that just you know blew up underneath us, right? 
Uh, and so that, that's going to involve some training aspect. I mean, you, you might have to do training for your crews to go on the Mark I version as opposed to the Mark IV version that, that you know, he or she has been, been operating. So, so, so we got, we got to think, think through that. Also, since reconstitution is, is not just about equipment, uh, think about MOSs, right? So, uh, you know, you're, you know, uh, I don't know, 35 Fox or, you know, you, you might not get a 35 Fox. Uh, you, you might have to train a, you know, you know, God help you, a 19 kilo, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm a 19 <laughs> series, so I, I can say that, uh, you know, to do that job. So it, it's going to take time, you know, energy and resources to, to return that capability back. So so d don't expect you're going to get a like item in reply. So, so I think that's a huge misconception that we got to knock down. Sir? Yeah, I think there's a few points that are, are real important to consider here. Uh, and I really like where Andy just went with his discussion about the personnel uh, implications of this as well. Uh, so from a planning perspective, uh, something that we don't do as well as we should is estimate our future personnel requirements for replacement operations. And that casually estimate, right, uh, that is done as part of the sustainment cell, as part of any battle staff, right, is so important. And commanders have to demand a quality, validated casualty estimate going into the fight uh, that, so that you can contemplate and you can start to uh, consider what it's going, the magnitude of the replacement operations required to help to regenerate your combat power. Uh, there's a new tool that we're using now uh, called the Medical Planner's Toolkit, uh, and it provides a uh, you know, 10x level of fidelity on, on a casualty uh, estimation than we've had in the past. And it's already being used in, in uh, uh, many different training environments, but I encourage commanders uh, to focus on that casualty estimate uh, to help drive planning considerations for reconstitution. Uh, I'd say there's a couple other other aspects of this. Uh, you know, we talked about the necessity of, of uh, training uh, and integration into our training exercises, accounting for it. Uh, but also there's, a, I think, a recognition that, yes, you know, as, as we've talked about, reconstitution, a deliberate two-phase process with reorganization uh, and regeneration. But we replenish combat power continuously, right? And, and the extent that we're successful in doing that during operations and setting conditions for that uh, prior to operations will we'll help to uh, guard against uh, the, the scale of regeneration we have to do following operations. So the things that we can do in terms of positioning of our assets, integration of capabilities into uh, our march columns, you know, think about you know, the wet gap crossing again, you know, the science of movement uh, and ensuring that, you know, we, we, we understand how to uh, integrate capabilities so that when we get to the far side of an obstacle, uh, we can have the endurance that we require not only to complete our missions, but to be postured for the next missions. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the level of fidelity that we apply to those operations will mitigate the, the scale or scope of the regeneration constitutions after operations as well. Yes, sir. So I have one, one more question before I, I give you guys the last word. Let's say this is, let's say you're, you're back at Chief of Staff of 8th Army, sir, and you're back either either J-4 or, or uh, the 19th ESE commander, and you have a new staff coming in, and we have to do some reconstitution. Um, what do you say to your staff? I'll start with you, Colonel McGraw. Sure, yeah. So, uh, you know, 8th, 8th Army, you know, being a unique entity, right, it's the only field army <laughs> within our inventory. Uh, so having some operational requirements, and on top of that, having, you know, theater 
army-like uh, responsibilities. So, you know, a couple of different hats. I, I would say, you know, the first thing I'd, I'd tell the staff is we've got to think two levels down. And what does that mean, right? So having the 19th ESC as a subordinate command, 8th Army and 2nd Infantry Division, you know, those are two general officer commands. So we got to think uh, at brigade level uh, for them. However, you know, we have all the, you know, supporting brigades, uh, you know, like 35th ADA and, and other brigades. So we have to think down to the battalion level for those, you know, particularly with, you know, some of the very unique capabilities that they bring. So as you think about reconstitution, you got to think down to that level, which may not be, you know, where a 8th Army planner or staff officer would immediately have to go to because we're, we're thinking at a, at a different echelon. Uh, then I'd also say we have to think two levels up, if, if not higher, because our, our job as 8th Army staff would have to be to articulate to USERPAC, to USFK, to AMC, and other support entities, what it, is it exactly that we need, right? And we have to articulate in a way that they can understand and then package it properly for us so we, then we can take it, integrate it, uh, on the peninsula using 19th ESC, I'm sure, and then getting it down to the user level. Then the last thing I would say is you got to think about our rock partners uh, because we, we are uh, in, in Korea, we are joined at the hip uh, and, and there, we, we cannot accomplish uh, th that mission on the peninsula unless we're, we're working very closely together. And based upon the nature and the intensity of the conflict that we would expect to have on the peninsula, we're going to take some serious losses. Even if we're very, very successful, we're going to experience a lot of losses. And our ROC partners, you know, based upon, you know, the current <clears throat> O plan and how we expect to fight, are going to take the brunt of that. Uh, and so they're going to come to us for help without question. They're going to come ask us for help. So what do we have in our inventory that we can share with them and how much can we afford to share? So I would say those would be the, the three big things I think I would communicate to the 8th Army staff. Yeah. And you use the ROC as an example, sir, because we're all coming from ROC, but this would apply to Europe. So your your partner, so our European forces, you know, they could be Polish. They could be whatever right. it is. Like we're, <clears throat> they'd be taking the brunt of of something. So it would be working with that. So General Simile, what, what would be your message to the staff or your well, staff? I, mean, I really appreciate Andy's uh, viewpoint in terms of focus two, level down and, two levels down and two levels up. Uh, and I would say on that, you know, two levels up um, to express a clear demand signal in advance uh, to the uh, strategic enablers, both at the theater and the national levels, uh, for future requirements. Register demand upon the joint logistics enterprise. Uh, not only those providing materiel, but also those providing transport of that materiel. Uh, so it's registered. If we're really mature about this, these requirements are probably on a tip fit somewhere, right? Not something that's a contingency stock that we might need later on. We know we're going to need it uh, at some phase of the battle, uh, these capabilities. Uh, I also like uh, Annie's point about uh, the gear that we end up with, right? Probably not being identical to what we had at the beginning of the fight. So it's going to introduce an interoperability gap uh, that, that we have to account for. Uh, and it might be, you know, pretty simple uh, example would be our communications equipment, uh, but there's many other aspects to it that we have to account for in our training plan. And then going back to the host nation support uh, aspect, uh, yes, I think we you know can anticipate demands from them. Okay, we know about precision munitions as as an example, right? But also they may have resources that we can coordinate in advance, uh, especially if you're talking about node and mode operators that could help us to do this or coordinating for terrain uh, or routes would help help us to enable this at particular phases and deconflicting uh, requirements for those things 
uh, with the host nation, uh, all really important. Uh, but also, I would just say um, some senior level level uh, considerations, right? It's just kind of a checklist of things that you probably want to bring into this this effort analytically. Uh, so, you know, being able to assess a desired level of capability that's needed uh, based upon the situation and anticipated follow-on operations for that degraded unit. Uh, being able to assess the intensity, nature, and duration of the battle, uh, assess the overall condition of the unit to be reconstituted, uh, and having the right tools that allow you to do that without guessing. Uh, looking at the availability of replacement personnel and equipment, you know, so you really understand what's in the inventory, what's in the art of possible from the training base or cross-leveling from other units that may not be in the theater of operations. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, anticipating the location of the re regeneration sites um, because you probably don't want to do that in the woods right uh, or on soft ground you probably want to have a place you know that has some level of maturity probably some components like power and some other things like that to help you do this um, and then you know you, we talked about it before what are the enemy, enemy capabilities where is he going to be able to range you uh, where you're doing this how far back how many terrain features uh, away uh, do you have to transport this or do it um, you know with a unit uh, so that, that's another consideration and then thinking about the availability of transportation assets right so um, at any given point in time there's going to be a high demand on transportation assets uh, and so how you allocate this how you prioritize it how you you know in, as we talk about transportation prioritizing not only uh, forward but also rearward movement uh, but also prioritizing the transportation assets as well uh, is, is another consideration. Uh, and then just, you know, the time available and the level that you need to achieve in terms of the readiness will help you, you know, gauge your level of effort and resources you put against it. Uh, and, and I would say that in any given theater, uh, we'll do this more than one time, right? So what do you do to improve and set conditions for those follow-on uh, times? Do you, you know, can, can you afford to hold some capability in reserve? Unlike uh, artillery systems, we do hold sustainment capabilities in reserve typically. Uh, so, you know, do, do you want to uh, preserve some future combat power generation capability uh, by only getting a given unit up to, say, 70 percent uh, so you can, you know, spread more of that peanut butter later on? Uh, and then, you know, how, how do you turn that into a long-term demand signal uh, to solve the future problem? Definitely a complicated issue. So, gentlemen, uh, before I, I let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we, before we take off? Hey, no, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Breaking Doctrine podcast series, uh, and, and now I feel very fortunate to be part of its inventory. Thanks, sir. Thank you both, sir. No, thanks a lot, Wyatt. Awesome. All right. Put this podcast together. It took a whole team of people. We've kind of been working on this for a while, so just want to kind of give a quick shout out to Lieutenant Colonel Retired John Cullen, who did a lot of work on developing the outline for this. And then, obviously, sir, your staff out at Fort Lee, the CASCOM staff, really supported the whole process. So I just want to give a shout out to all of them and convey our thanks for all the help that they did. Obviously, the fact that you came out here, sir, I appreciate it. Colonel Magado, really appreciate you coming over. I'd also like to thank our listeners and know that the views and opinions expressed in the podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, the Combined Arms Center, and the U.S. Army.